Chapter Twelve, Section Five of *The Promise of American Life* by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Twelve, Section Five: The Organization of Labor. Only one essential phase of a constructive national policy remains to be considered, and that is the organization of labor. The necessity for the formulation of some constructive policy in respect to labor is as patent as is that for the formulation of a similar policy in respect to corporate wealth. Any progress in the solution of the problem of the better distribution of wealth will, of course, have a profound indirect effect on the amelioration of the condition of labor, but such progress will be at best extremely slow, and in the meantime the labor problem presses for some immediate and direct action. As we have seen, American labor has not been content with the traditional politico-economic optimism. Like all aggressive men alive to their own interest, the laborer soon decided that what he really needed was not equal rights, but special opportunities. He also learned that in order to get these special opportunities, he must conquer them by main force, which he proceeded to do with, on the whole, about as much respect for the law as was exhibited by the big capitalists. In spite of many setbacks, the unionizing of industrial labor has been attended with almost as much success as the consolidating of industrial power and wealth. And now that the labor unions have earned the allegiance of their members, by certain considerable and indispensable services, they find themselves placed, in the eyes of the law, in precisely the same situation as combinations of corporate wealth. Both of these attempts at industrial organization are condemned by the Sherman Antitrust Law and by certain similar state legislation as conspiracies against the freedom of trade and industry. The labor unions, consequently, like the big corporations, need legal recognition, and this legal recognition means, in their case, also, substantial discrimination by the state in their favor. Of course, the unionist leaders appeal to public opinion with the usual American cant. According to their manifestos they demand nothing but fair play, but the demand for fair play is as usual, merely the hypocritical exterior of a demand for substantial favoritism. Just as there can be no effective competition between the huge corporation controlling machinery of production which cannot be duplicated and the small manufacturer in the same line, so there can be no effective competition between the individual laborer and the really efficient labor union. To recognize the labor union, and to incorporate it into the American legal system, is equivalent to the desertion by the state of the non-union laborer. It means that in the American political and economic system, the organization of labor into unions should be preferred to its disorganized separation into competing individuals. Complete freedom of competition among laborers, which is often supposed to be for the interest of the individual laborer, can only be preserved as an effective public policy by active discrimination against the unions. An admission that the recognition of labor unions amounts to a substantial discrimination in their favor would do much to clear up the whole labor question. So far as we declare that the labor unions ought to be recognized, we declare that they ought to be favored and so far as we declare that the labor union ought to be favored, we have made a great advance towards the organization of labor in the national interest. The labor unions deserve to be favored, because they are the most effective machinery which has yet been forged, 
for the economic and social amelioration of the laboring class. They have helped to raise the standard of living, to mitigate the rigors of competition among individual laborers, and in this way to secure for labor a larger share of the total industrial product. A democratic government has little or less reason to interfere on behalf of the non-union laborer than it has to interfere in favor of the small producer. As a type, the non-union laborer is a species of industrial derelict. He is the laborer who has gone astray and who either from apathy, unintelligence, incompetence, or some immediately pressing need, prefers his own individual interests to the joint interests of himself and his fellow laborers. From the point of view of a constructive national policy, he does not deserve any special protection. In fact, I am willing to go farther and assert that the non-union industrial laborer should, in the interest of a genuinely democratic organization of labor, be rejected, and he should be rejected as emphatically, if not as ruthlessly, as the gardener rejects the weeds in his garden for the benefit of fruit and flower-bearing plants. The statement just made unquestionably has the appearance of proposing a harsh and unjust policy in respect to non-union laborers. But before the policy is stigmatized as really harsh or unjust, the reader should wait until he has pursued the argument to its end. Our attitude towards the non-union laborer must be determined by our opinion of the results of his economic action. In the majority of discussions of the labor question, the non-union laborer is figured as the independent working man, who is asserting his right to labor when and how he prefers against the tyranny of the labor union. One of the most intelligent political and social thinkers in our country has gone so far as to describe them as industrial heroes, who are fighting the battle of individual independence against the army of class oppression. Neither is this estimate of the non-union laborer wholly without foundation. The organization and policy of the contemporary labor union being what they are, cases will occasionally and frequently occur in which the non-union laborer will represent the protest of an individual against injurious restrictions imposed by the union upon his opportunities and his work. But such cases are rare compared to the much larger number of instances in which the non-union laborer is to be considered as essentially the individual industrial derelict. In the competition among laboring men for work, there will always be a certain considerable portion who, in order to get some kind of work for a while, will accept almost any conditions of labor or scale of reward offered to them. Men of this kind either because of irresponsibility, unintelligence, or a total lack of social standards and training, are continually converting the competition of the labor market into a force which degrades the standard of living and prevents masses of their fellow workmen from obtaining any real industrial independence. They, it is, who bring about the result that the most disagreeable and dangerous classes of labor remain the poorest paid, and as long as they are permitted to have their full effects upon the labor situation, progress to a higher standard of living is miserably slow, and always suffers a severe setback during a period of hard times. From any comprehensive point of view, union and non-union labor represents the independence of the laborer, because under existing conditions such independence must be bought by association. Worthy individuals will sometimes be sacrificed by this process of association, but every process of individual organization or change, even one in a constructive direction, 
necessarily involves individual cases of injustice. Hence it is that the policy of so-called impartiality is both impracticable and inexpedient. The politician who solemnly declares that he believes in the right of the laboring man to organize, and that labor unions are deserving of approval, but that he also believes in the right of the individual laborer to eschew unionism, whenever it suits his individual purpose or a lack of purpose. Such familiar declarations constitute merely one more illustration of our traditional habit, of having it both ways. It is always possible to have it both ways, in case the two ways do not come into conflict. But where they do conflict in fact and in theory, the sensible man must make his choice. The labor question will never be advanced towards solution by proclaiming it to be a matter of antagonistic individual rights. It involves a fundamental public interest, the interest which a democracy must necessarily take in the economic welfare of its own citizens, and this interest demands that a decisive preference be shown for labor organization. The labor unions are perfectly right in believing that all who are not for them are against them, and that a state which was really impartial would be adopting a hypocritical method of retarding the laborer from improving his condition. The unions deserve frank and loyal support, and until they obtain it, they will remain, as they are at present, merely a class organization for the purpose of extorting from the political and economic authorities the maximum of their special interests. The labor unions should be granted their justifiable demand for recognition, partly because only by means of recognition can an effective fight be made against their unjustifiable demands. The large American employer of labor and the whole official politico-economic system is placed upon the defensive by a refusal, frankly, to prefer unionism. Union labor is allowed to conquer at the sword's point a preferential treatment, which should never have been refused. And the consequence is that its victory, so far as it is victorious, is that of an industrial faction. The large employer and the state are disqualified from insisting on their essential and justifiable interests in respect to the organization of labor, because they have rejected a demand essential to the interests of the laborer. They have remained consistently on the defensive, and a merely defensive policy in warfare is a losing policy. Every battle the unions win is a clear gain. Every fight which they lose means merely a temporary suspension of their aggressive tactics. They lose nothing by it but a part of their equipment and prestige, which can be restored by a short period of inaction and accumulation. A few generations more of this sort of warfare will leave the unions in substantial possession of the whole area of conflict, and their victory may well turn their heads so completely that its effects will be intolerable and disastrous. The alternative policy would consist in a combination of conciliation and aggressive warfare. The spokesman of a constructive national policy in respect to the organization of labor would address the unions in some such words as these, Yes, you are perfectly right in demanding recognition, and in demanding that none but union labor be employed in industrial work. That demand will be granted, but only on definite terms. You should not expect an employer to recognize a union which establishes conditions and rules of labor inimical to a desirable measure of individual economic distinction and independence. Your recognition, that is, must depend upon conformity to another set of conditions imposed in the interest of efficiency and individual economic independence. In this respect you will be treated precisely as large corporations are treated, 
the state will recognize the kind of union which in contributing to the interest of its members contributes also to the general economic interest on the other hand it will not only refuse to recognize a union whose rules and methods are inimical to the public economic interest but it will aggressively and relentlessly fight such unions employment will be denied to laborers who belong to unions of that character in trades where unions are dominant counter unions will be organized and the members of these counter unions alone will have any chance of obtaining work in this way the organization of labor like the organization of capital may gradually be fitted into a nationalized economic system the conditions to which a good labor union ought to conform are more easily definable than the conditions to which a good trust ought to conform in the first place the union should have the right to demand a minimum wage and a minimum working day this minimum would vary of course in different trades in different branches of the same trade and in different parts of the country and it might vary also at different industrial seasons it would be reached by collective bargaining between the organizations of the employer and those of the employee the unions would be expected to make the best terms that they could and under the circumstances they ought to be able to make terms as good as trade conditions would allow these agreements would be absolute within the limits contained in the bond the employer should not have to keep on his payroll any man who in his opinion was not worth the money but if any man was employed he could not be obliged to work for less than for a certain sum on the other hand in return for such a privileged position the unions would have to abandon a number of rules upon which they now insist collective bargaining should establish the minimum amount of work and pay but the maximum of work and pay should be left to individual arrangement an employer should be able to give a peculiarly able or energetic laborer as much more than the minimum wage as in his opinion the man is worth and men might be permitted to work overtime provided they were paid for the overtime one and one half or two times as much as they were paid for an ordinary working hour the agreement between the employers and the union should also provide for the terms upon which men would be admitted into the union the employer if he employed only union men should have a right to demand that the supply of labor should not be artificially restricted and that he could depend upon procuring as much labor as the growth of his business might require finally in all skilled trades there should obviously be some connection between the unions and the trade schools and it might be in this respect that the union would enter into the closest relations with the state the state would have a manifest interest in making the instruction in these schools the very best and in furnishing it free to as many apprentices as the trade agreement permitted in all probability the general policy roughly sketched above will please one side to the labor controversy as little as it does another union leaders might compare the recognition received by the unions under the proposed conditions to the recognition which the bear accords to the man whom he hugs to death they would probably prefer for the time being their existing situation that of being on the high road to the conquest of almost unconditional submission on the other hand the large employers believe with such fine heroism of conviction in the principle of competition among their employees that they dislike to surrender the advantages of industrial freedom to the oppressive exigencies of collective bargaining in assuming such an attitude both sides would be right from their own class point of view 
the plan is not intended to further the selfish interest of either the employer or the union whatever merits it has consists in its possible ability to promote the national economic interest in a progressively improving general standard of living in a higher standard of individual work and in a general efficiency of labor the existing system has succeeded hitherto in effecting a progressive improvement in the standard of living but the less said the better about its effects upon labor quality and labor efficiency in the long run it looks as if the improvement in the standard of living would be brought to an end by the accompanying inefficiency of labor at any rate the employers are now fighting for an illusory benefit and because they are fighting for an illusory benefit they are enabling the unions to associate all sorts of dangerous conditions with their probable victory the proposed plan does not do away with the necessity of a fight the relations between labor and capital are such that only by fighting can they reach a better understanding but it asks the employers to consider carefully what they are fighting for and whether they will not lose far more from a defeat than they will gain from a successful defense and it asks the unions to consider whether a victory gained at the expense of labor efficiency will not deprive them of its fruits let the unions fight for something they can keep and let the employers fight for something they will not be sure to lose the writer is fully aware of the many difficulties attending the practical application of any such policy indeed it could not be worked at all unless the spirit and methods of collective bargaining between the employers and the labor organizations were very much improved the consequences of a strike would be extremely serious for both of the disputants and for the consumers if disagreements terminating in strikes and lockouts remained as numerous as they are at present there would result both for the producer and consumer a condition of perilous and perhaps intolerable uncertitude but this objection although serious is not unanswerable the surest way in which a condition of possible warfare founded on a genuine conflict of interest can be permanently alleviated is to make its consequences increasingly dangerous when the risks become very dangerous reasonable men do not fight except on grave provocation or for some essential purpose such would be the result in any industry both the employers and laborers of which were completely organized collective bargaining would under such circumstances assume a serious character and no open fight would ensue except under exceptional conditions and in the event of grave and essential differences of opinion moreover the state could make them still less likely to happen by a policy of discreet supervision through the passage of a law similar to the one recently enacted in the dominion of canada it could assure the employers and the public that no strike would take place until every effort had been made to reach a fair understanding or a compromise and in case a strike did result public opinion could form a just estimate of the merits of the controversy in an atmosphere of discussion and publicity really prudent employers and labor organizations would fight very rarely if at all and this result would be the more certain provided a consensus of public opinion existed as the extent to which the clashing interests of the two combatants could be fitted into the public interest it should be clearly understood that the public interest demanded on the one hand a standard of living for the laborer as high as the industrial conditions would permit and on the other a standard of labor efficiency equivalent to the cost of labor 
and an opportunity for the exceptional individual laborer to improve on that standard in his own interest. The whole purpose of such an organization would be the attempt to develop efficient labor and prosperous laboring men, whereas the tendency of the existing organization is to associate the prosperity of the laboring man with the inefficiency of labor. The employers are usually fighting not for the purpose of developing good labor, but for the purpose of taking advantage of poor, weak, and dependent laborers. How far the central, state, and municipal governments could go in aiding such a method of organization is a question that can only be indefinitely answered. The legislatures of many American states and municipalities have already shown a disposition to aid the labor unions in certain indirect ways. They seek, by the passage of eight-hour and prevailing rate of wages laws, to give an official sanction to the claims of the unions, and they do so without making any attempt to promote the parallel public interest in an increasing efficiency of labor. But these eight-hour and other similar laws are frequently being declared unconstitutional by the state courts and for the supposed benefit of individual liberty. Without venturing on the disputed ground, as to whether such decisions are legitimate or illegitimate interpretations of constitutional provisions, it need only be said in this, as in other instances, that the courts are as much influenced in other decisions by a political theory as they are by any fidelity to the fundamental law, and that if they continue indefinitely in the same course, they are likely to get into trouble. I shall, however, as usual, merely evade constitutional obstacles, the full seriousness of which none but an expert lawyer is competent to appraise. Both the state and the municipal governments ought, just in so far as they have the power, to give preference to union labor, but wherever possible they should also not hesitate to discriminate between good and bad unions. Such a discrimination would be beyond the courage of existing governments, but a mild hope may be entertained that it would not be beyond the courage of the regenerated governments. The adoption of some such attitude by the municipal and state authorities might encourage employers to make the fight along the same lines. And wherever an employer did make the fight along those lines, he should, in his turn, receive all possible support. In the long run, the state could hardly impose by law such a method of labor organization upon the industrial fabric. Unless the employers themselves came to realize just what they could fight for with some chance of success, and with the best general results if successful, the state could not force him into a better understanding of the relation between their own and the public interest. But in so far as any tendency existed among employers to recognize the unions, but to insist on efficiency and individual opportunity, and in so far as any tendency existed among the unions to recognize the necessary relation between an improving standard of living and the efficiency of labor, then the state and municipal governments could interfere effectively on behalf of those employers and those unions who stand for a constructive labor policy. And in case the tendency towards an organization of labor in the national interest becomes dominant, it might be possible to embody it in a set of definite legal institutions. But any such set of legal institutions would be impossible without an alteration in the federal and many state constitutions and consequently they could not, in any event, become a matter for precisely pressing consideration. In general, however, the labor problem, even more than the corporation problem, will involve grave and dubious questions of constitutional interpretation, 
and not much advance can be made towards its solution until in one way or another the hands of the legislative authority have been untied before ending this very inadequate discussion of the line of advance towards a constructive organization of labor one more aspect thereof must be briefly considered under the proposed plan the fate of the non-union worker of the industrial dependent would hang chiefly on the extent to which the thoroughgoing organization of labor was carried in so far as he was the independent industrial individual which the opponents of labor unions suppose him to be he would have no objection to joining the union because his individual power of efficient labor would have full opportunity of securing its reward on the other hand in so far as he was unable to maintain a standard of work commensurate with the prevailing rate of wages in any trade he would of course be excluded from its ranks but it should be added that in an enormous and complicated industrial body such as that of the united states a man who could not maintain the standard of work in one trade should be able to maintain it in another and less exacting trade the man who could not become an efficient carpenter might do for a hod carrier and a man who found hod carrying too hard on his shoulders might be able to dig in the ground there would be a sufficient variety of work for all kinds of industrial workers while at the same time there would be a systematic attempt to prevent the poorer and less competent workers from competing with those of a higher grade and hindering the latter's economic amelioration such a result would be successful only in so far as the unions were in full possession of the field but if the unions secured full possession even of part of the field the tendency will be towards an ever completer monopoly the fewer trades into which the non-union laborers were crowded would drift into an intolerable condition which would make unionizing almost compulsory if all or almost all the industrial labor of the country came to be organized in the manner proposed the only important kind of non-union laborer left in the country would be agricultural and such a result could be regarded with equanimity by the economic statesman the existing system works very badly in respect to supplying the farmer with necessary labor in every period of prosperity the tendency is for agricultural laborers to rush off to the towns and cities for the sake of the larger wages and the less monotonous life and when a period of depression follows their competition lowers the standard of living in all organized trades if the supply of labor were regulated and its efficiency increased as it would be under the proposed system agricultural laborers would not have the opportunity of finding industrial work except of the most inferior class until their competence had been proved and it would become less fluid and unstable than it is at present moreover farm labor is on the whole much more wholesome for economically dependent and mechanically untrained men than labor in towns or cities they are more likely under such conditions to maintain a higher moral standard if they can be kept upon the farm until or unless they are prepared for a higher class of work it will be the greatest possible boon to american farming agriculture suffers in this country peculiarly from the scarcity the instability and the high cost of labor and unless it becomes more abundant less fluid and more efficient compared to its cost intensive farming as practiced in europe will scarcely be possible in the united states neither should it be forgotten that the least intelligent and trained grade of labor would be more prosperous on the farms than in the cities because of the lower cost of living in an agricultural region 
their scale of wages would be determined in general by that of the lowest grade of industrial labor but their expenses would be materially smaller that the organization of labor herewith suggested would prove to be any ultimate solution of the labor problem is wholly improbable it would constitute like the proposed system of corporate regulation at best a transitional method of reaching some very different method of labor training distribution and compensation and what that method might be is at present merely a matter of speculation the proposed reorganization of labor like the proposed system of institutional reform and like the proposed constructive regulation of large industrial corporations simply takes advantage of those tendencies in our current methods which look in a formative direction and in so far as these several tendencies prevail they will severally supplement and strengthen one another the more independent responsible and vigorous political authority will be the readier to seek some formative solution of the problem of the distribution of wealth and that of the organization of labor just in so far as capital continues to combine the state is bound to appropriate the fruits of its monopoly for public purposes just in so far as the corporations become the lessees of special franchises from the state pressure can be brought to bear in favor of the more systematic and more stimulating organization of labor and finally just in so far as labor was systematically organized public opinion would demand a vigorous and responsible concentration of political and economic power in order to maintain a proper balance an organic unity binds the three aspects of the system together and in so far as a constructive tendency becomes powerful in any one region it will tend in its own force to introduce constructive methods of organization into the other divisions of the economic political and social body such are the outlines of a national policy which seeks to do away with existing political and economic abuses not by purification or purging but by substituting for them a more positive mode of action and a more edifying habit of thought the policy seeks to make headway towards the most far-reaching and thoroughgoing democratic ideals by the taking advantage of real conditions and using realistic methods the result may wear to advanced social reformers the appearance of a weak compromise the extreme socialist democrat will find a discrepancy between the magnificent end and the paltry means why seek to justify he will ask a series of proposals for economic and institutional reform most of which have already been tried in europe for purely practical reasons why seek to justify such a humble scheme of reconstruction by such a remote and lofty purpose it might remind him of a new yorker who started for the north pole but proposed to get there by the subway the justification for the association of such a realistic practical program with an end which is nothing short of moral and social improvement of mankind is to be found however by the manner in which even the foregoing proposals will be regarded by the average american democrat he will regard them as in meaning and effect subversive of the established political and economic system of the country and he would be right the american people could never adopt the accompanying program moderate as it is from the point of view of its ultimate object without settling some of their most settled habits and transforming many of their most cherished ideas it would mean for the american people the gradual assumption of a new responsibility the adoption of a new outlook the beginning of a new life it would consequently be radical and revolutionary in implication 
even though it were modest in its expectation of immediate achievement, and the fact that it is revolutionary in implication, but moderate in its practical proposals, is precisely the justification for my description of it as a constructive national program. It is national just because it seeks to realize the purpose of American National Association without undermining or overthrowing the living conditions of American national integrity. End of chapter 12